Welcome to The Truth Simply Put, the teaching broadcast vehicle of the Basilea Commission. On today's teaching by Alexander Victor, God's Word, rightly divided in the light of Christ, who is the central theme of the entire scriptures, will come with simplicity, precision, clarity, and power to instruct, admonish, edify, and build you up into the full measure of the stature of Christ. Now, let's dive straight in. Okay, so we're in discipleship consciousness. We are exploring part, part five. Believers are disciples of Jesus. Jesus doesn't disciple any believer. Men do. Men disciple believers. Believers are disciples of Jesus. And it will sound a little bit controversial, but you, do you realize that when the truth is taught, it only sounds controversial to the skeptic or to the rebellious? Because we have been, we have been taught in this house that the gospel is first for believing and then for understanding. It is not wise at any point in your walk with God to see what the scripture says and think it didn't say that. Instead, you should ask why it said that and how it's applicable to you. Not because of how it sounds. Take on the posture as though the scripture could not have said that. Do you understand what I'm saying? If the scripture says what the scripture says, then it says it. And you believe it. And that's why it's important who you subscribe to as your disciple and as your pastor. Because no matter how crazy life things it can make me get, I will never stand up in front of God's people and say something the word of God does not corroborate. It's, it's foolish to say what the word doesn't say in an era where people can always find out what the word actually says. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. This is not the dark ages where they hid the Bible from everybody. In this real-time era, every Greek word, every Hebrew word, every English word, you can find out. Jesus discipled in his human life and stopped. Because again, I've told you, only humans can disciple. Discipleship is men making other men like them or like who they believe. Does that make sense? Discipleship is men making other men or convincing other men to become like them or who they believe. Now I said like them or who they believe because you'll find that the disciples of John subscribed to the doctrines of John. The disciples of the Pharisees subscribed to the doctrines of the Pharisees aka the law of Moses. Right? Very likely the sons of the prophets who submitted to Elisha subscribed to Elisha's approach. I won't be surprised to read a part of Bible history or the Talmud and see some of these sons of the prophets calling bears out of the woods at will. Because their principal did it and didn't lose sleep over it. Just 40 children, right? Two bears. 
called two bears out of the woods to eat up 40 children because they told a bald-headed man that he was bald. It's not a lie. You're bald. And what did they say, King James? Go up, thou bald man. Go up, thou bald man. And that was it. Double portion of the anointing was, was, was... His account was full. He needed to spend money. So he calls out of the woods and then two bears comes and eats up 40 children for saying that a bald-headed man was bald. Now, even if you weren't bald, them telling you they were bald would not have made you bald. So before you say Elisha was a powerful man of God, you look at that in the light of God's character as revealed in Christ. Does that make sense? Jesus would not do such nonsense. It is absolute arrant nonsense by a man of God. Left in scripture so that by diligent study you can understand in the light of Christ what not to do. Some things are in scripture to show you what not to do in the light of Christ. Along with the stuff that show you, of course, what to do. Are you following me now? But if Elisha had disciples, they definitely would have subscribed to Elisha's doctrines or approach. Azar, the same thing. Then Jesus comes. But you see, Jesus is a man not like the other men. Jesus is a man who is a God system explained. Are you following me now? In other words, the, how do I put this in the Holy Spirit? Jesus teaches the gospel of the kingdom of God. And we know that he is the kingdom of God, right? We saw that in UTG series 1 and 2. We know that he is the kingdom. We know that he is the grace of God, right? Because we saw that the law came, John 1, the law came by Moses, grace and truth came by Jesus, right? We see in Titus 2 that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching them. And we know that that is Jesus. So he's the grace of God. He's the kingdom of God. So Jesus, in preaching the kingdom of God, he essentially preached himself without preaching himself. Because Jesus never preached himself. He preached repentance with the kingdom is in hand and he said to preach the kingdom. But when he says, seek ye first the kingdom and his righteousness, he's referring to himself. But himself, not as Jesus of Nazareth. Himself as Christ, the exalted one. So Jesus would not necessarily have preached himself in the state he was when he was preaching. Because the state he was in when he was preaching the gospel was not this end result of our salvation. If Jesus was preaching himself, or if he concentrated on preaching himself, he would have been preaching the pre-glorified Christ. Who really would not be called Christ. At least not vitally. Does that make sense? He would have been preaching Jesus, the carpenter, the carpenter's son. How be it on earth blameless as a man? To be the sacrifice and the propitiation for our sins. Does that make sense? So 
the name Christ Jesus, first of all, is the name in full was given to him after he resurrected. Remember? Philippians 2 makes that clear, right? Whereby God highly exalted him. You know, first of all, he says that he humbled himself to death, death on the cross, made himself of no reputation, right? And then, as a result, whereby God highly exalted him and gave him the name, right? Hebrews 1 makes it clear as well. Today, thou has become my son. Today, I'm your father. And that today was not referring to when Jesus was born. <laughs> and that today was not referring to when Jesus was baptized. Which is the same day the Holy Ghost came upon him in bodily form as a dove. That was not the day. No. God spoke and said, this is my beloved son. But that was not the day he was adopted. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, right? Yeah. And he was born. And he generally traces him to son of God. And then on the day he was baptized, which is the same day that the Holy Ghost came upon him in bodily form. And God spoke from heaven and said, this is my Beloved son, whom I'm well pleased, hear ye him. On the Mount of Transfiguration, God repeats the same thing. And says, this is my beloved son. But that wasn't the day he was God, he became God's son. Once you understand that, you'll understand how now you are called the son of God. But you're not yet adopted. Then a lot of things will just make sense instantly. Are you the son of God? Yes. Are you the son of God? No. <laughs> and both answers are correct. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. So, positionally, God kept emphasizing the sonship of Jesus until vitally he had to die and resurrect into it. That's when God said, Today I have begotten you. Not the day Mary gave birth to him. The day God gave birth to him. That's the day he was born again. You follow me now? Mm-hmm. He's called son of God. So if Jesus had been preaching himself before the cross, he might have been preaching or pointing attention to a wrong or, or as it were, as it were, uh, immature less substantive version of himself because he had not yet been exalted he had not yet been glorified even on the mount of transfiguration when they saw that transfiguration what happened he finished it was a vision it wasn't the glorified jesus that came down from the mountain it was regular jesus that went up because if the transfigured jesus came down in his transfigured state nobody would have dared arrest him dare you if Jesus came down from the mountain in that level of glory the regular Jesus was saying to them in the garden who are you looking for say Jesus they fell down <laughs> you remember as regular Jesus oh, bros J he asked them again second time who are you looking for they said Jesus they fell down if it was you they sent you to arrest somebody. The person is identifying himself. You are falling down. Will you not get up from where you fell? <laughs> That's how you know that they were running in autopilot. They had to carry out the counsel of God. 
Yes. Yes. They had, they had to. They, they had to. It's not something they could walk away from, unfortunately. So since it, it, it befalls us, it behoves us, it's our lot to arrest Jesus. Arrest him we must. Even if he kills us. Because by the time you fall the first time, you remember that they've told the story of some 50 soldiers that went to arrest one prophet. And he called on fire from heaven to burn them twice. And that was just a prophet. This one they are saying is the king of the Jews. And he just announced himself and you're falling. He said, bros. But that's how you know that these guys didn't have a choice in the matter. You had to arrest him. Had to. And that was just regular Jesus. Imagine if he was that guy who was transfigured before them. Came down glowing. His robes emitting white light. And his, everybody would have followed him. Everybody would have followed him. I've looked like a god. So when that theophany finished, the vision lifted in the same way that if you read Acts 10, I think it is, when Peter had a vision of the unclean animals, you will see that at the end of it, the vision lifted. Acts 10, from verse 9. The next day as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the rooftop, house top to pray about the sixth hour. This is 3 p.m. Uh, no, this is 12, 12 o'clock rather. Ninth hour is 3 p.m. Then he became hungry and went out to eat, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a green sheet bound at the four corners descended to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Don't forget, he was hungry. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, but forbid. For I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Religious spirit. And the voice spoke to him again a second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. 16. This was done three times. And the object was taken up into heaven again. 17. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this, that's when it's named, that it was a vision. Which he had seen meant. The story unfolds. Bottom line, it was a vision. And the vision is like an epiphany that shows you something that is not real, but shows you intangible means enough for you to relate with it. Does that make sense? Shows up like something that is unreal, but is really enough for you to relate with. Does that make sense? It's not in the physical, but it's tangible enough for you to relate with it as though it were physical. Are you following me now? That's a vision. That's what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. You understand? That explains the conundrum or the controversy of is Moses alive? Is Elijah alive? Why are they appearing with Jesus? It was a vision. In the vision, Moses represented the law. In the vision, Elijah represented the prophets. Because before John the Baptist, Elijah was the greatest of the prophets. Then John the Baptist was called a greater than Elijah is here. 
referring to John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist called the greatest of the prophets. In fact, John the Baptist, Jesus said, came in the spirit of Elijah. Because the scripture prophesied it, that Elijah will come again. So they expected a reincarnation of Elijah. Why have I come here now? <laughs> These are things that I will talk about later. Yeah, because Jesus said that he will come in the spirit of Elijah. Malachi, I think, mentions that. Uh, in, I think I've touched on this before. I can't remember, but Malachi mentions this in chapter 4. Amen. Oh, Sorry, my darling. 4 verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Malachi 4 and 4. With the statutes and judgments. 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. You see that? Matthew 11, before the dreadful day of the Lord. Matthew eleven seven. And as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did he go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did he go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did he go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I said to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare a way before you. This refers to both Malachi uh, four, as well as the chapter before Malachi 3. So if you go back to Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, you'll see where it says clearly, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. You see that? Malachi 3, 1. So this is, whom, this is now Jesus quoting Malachi 3 in Matthew um, 17. You get that? Okay. So that's um, Mark 6 as well. You see in Mark 6 14 um, John the Baptist had become very popular in this time. In Mark 6 14 now King Herod heard of him for his name had become well known. And he said John the Baptist is risen from the dead and therefore this powers or oh, this is talking about Jesus um, this, therefore these powers are at work in him. See verse 15. Others said is Elijah. Because they were expecting that Elijah would come. And they didn't realize that Elijah was John the Baptist who had come in the spirit of Elijah. Make sense? Um, Luke 1.13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias. This is the father of John. For your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. 17. He will also go before him. Look at that. He will go before him, the Lord, their God. Yeah? This John will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to, open quote, enter Malachi 4. 
turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just to make ready Malachi 3.1 a people prepared for the Lord. See that? So Jesus quotes Malachi 3. Of course, he's referring to Malachi 4. In Luke, he's more clear. Gabriel says he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. So when John came, that was actually the prophetic fulfillment of Elijah coming. Yeah, so we're talking uh, transfiguration, Matthew 17, and, and about the fact that it was a vision, and about people beginning to argue that Moses and Elijah could be alive, and, or they're in heaven. So what you had was theophanies, what you had was visions. Does that make sense? So in the way that Peter will see four-footed animals and stuff, in the same way that uh, Belt Shaza would have seen a writing on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Offer in the same way that Moses would have seen a burning bush that was burning and was not consumed, in the same way Peter, James, and John would have seen a theophany, yeah, of, of Jesus and what appeared to be Elijah and what appeared to be John and what they symbolize, particularly for what they symbolize. Does that make sense? Nothing more. So when they finished, when the vision finished and lifted, they all returned back just as they left. It was in the height of the vision happening that Peter was like, wow, we're not living here. What, what I'm seeing. But when the vision finished, Peter agreed to come down. There was no way he would have agreed to come down if that thing was still ongoing. Does that make sense? So that's important that we understand. That and then he, when he's resurrected, then Jesus is fully glorified. He's the Christ, the Son of God, the begotten of the Father. And then the gospel starts to point to him in its totality, starting with Philip. He was the first person we saw in UTG series 2 that began to preach the name of Jesus and the things pertaining to the kingdom. I'm saying all that to say that Jesus now being preached is beyond the man, is the system of God's salvation. Are you following me? Jesus being preached is not a man like John, even though he is a man when he was on the earth. Jesus being preached is not a man like Elisha, even though he was a man on the earth when he's there making disciples. Jesus being preached is not a man like the Pharisees, even though he was on the earth, just like the Pharisees were. Jesus being preached is God's system of salvation, God's plan for salvation for all ages, and the fullness of the explanation of God. Are you following me now? Therefore, no man who Jesus has discipled can preach themselves because they would not be who Christ is. That's why Pav cannot in actual sense say my disciples in actual sense if I said my disciples the best I'm saying is disciples for Christ that are being raised under my charge not disciples that follow my conviction because I am following his conviction does that make sense in other words we cannot have disciples to ourselves under Christ because Christ is the message. Do you understand why disciples of Jesus are different from disciples of John? Disciples of Jesus, of John, believe John. 
Disciples of Elisha believed Elisha. Disciples of Isaiah believed Isaiah. Disciples of the Pharisees believed the Pharisees. Disciples of Jesus believed Jesus, whether Jesus raises them or not. So even if men raise disciples for Jesus, men are raising disciples to believe Jesus. <laughs> Do you understand it? If we raise disciples, when we raise disciples, we are raising disciples unto Jesus because he is the message. Are you following me now? He's the message. They will never be our disciples. We are raising them unto him in whom we have believed. That's why the following of a disciple is to the leader as unto Christ. You're following the leader who is pointing you to Jesus. That's the choice you have to make. To determine whether or not who you have decided to follow is pointing you to where you need to go. In fact, that's the only choice you need to make. Are you here? That's the only choice you have. And you must exercise that choice carefully and deliberately. Whom I have chosen to follow is he or she pointing me to Christ whose disciple in actual fact I am under this under shepherd. Yeah, under shepherd is under shepherd because there's the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd is the owner of the sheep. The under shepherd is the caretaker of the sheep. Do you understand? So the choice you have to exercise in following or submitting yourself to following is, is this person I'm following going to lead me to the Christ? That's the choice you have. Once you determine that, you throw yourself all in. Because you would become whom you follow. If you're not becoming who you're following, then you're not following. You are not following. If you're not becoming who you follow. So you must be comfortable that who you're following is showing you where you need to go. And in church, the discipleship model is to point men to Christ so they can become him. Do you understand? We're disciples of Christ. We're disciples of Jesus. And that's what God now in Christ, who is now in us. <laughs> Do you understand the formula? God in Christ who is in us. Because right? all God does, he does in Christ. And Christ is the location of everything God does. God was in Christ. Reconciling the world. In Christ was how God did it. In Christ was how God is how God does it. So if God is doing anything, God is doing all he's doing in Christ. And Christ is in men. Make sense? So God is in Christ who is in men making disciples for Christ. God is the happy for these disciples to be called disciples of Christ and not disciples of God because God himself is totally fulfilled in Christ. Does that make sense? Because God has made all things subject to him. So God is okay now for you to worship Jesus. He's not even looking for glory or worship. Because since God has made Christ all things, 
To worship Christ, to honor Christ is to worship and honor God. So God has given him the name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, not at the name of God as it were. Yeah, so yes, Yahweh, fantastic. Adonai, beautiful. Jehovah, fan- fabulous. But all these names you're calling this, this God, he has said, this is the name I've given you. <laughs> so you see why when I say some things, they sound controversial, but it's scripture. It doesn't matter how many names you call God in worship. If you are not cognizant, of the name of Jesus, you have not worshipped God. Yes. Call him all the name, the masquerade that runs out in the daytime and every other masquerade runs. The lion that when he roars, all the mosquitoes flee. You know, the... Hype him all you want. If you don't recognize the Lordship of Christ Jesus, you haven't honored God. It pleased God, Paul says in Colossians, that in Christ all the fullness of God should dwell. Ooh. Do you understand the import of that statement? Colossians 1 19. For it pleased the Father. Give me the amplified. For it pleased the Father. For all the fullness, that is, the fullness of deity or divinity of the Godhead, the sum total of his essence, all his perfection, powers and attributes to dwell permanently in the Son. It pleased the Father that in Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, all the everything God is. Locate Jesus, you've located everything about God. So, to Christianity, Jesus, Jesus is beyond just saying in Jesus' name. You know, that's mostly what we think the name is good for. It's more than just saying in Jesus' name. Jesus is the system of the Godhead. So, and this is where some of our fellows as much as they understand a lot of truth, they get to the point where they say, no, don't worship Jesus, he's the son. No, worship Jesus, the son, because he's the fullness of the expression of the father. You know what? They, they stop short of acknowledging Jesus as worthy of worship. And they argue that Jesus is not God. Why would you worship him? But yet a woman ran to him and fell down and worshipped him when her child was sick. After she cried and he answered her not a word. Remember that account in Luke? She lay down and cried. He answered her not a word. Then she came and worshipped him and said, my child is sick. And Jesus did not say, do not worship me. I am not God. Because for Jesus, even before the cross, equality with God was not a, an issue. Before the cross. Because Philippians makes it clear. That he who thought it not robbery. To be equal with God. Took on the form. This is pre-cross Jesus. This is Jesus of Nazareth. Took on the form of a servant. 
to a quality with who worship. He didn't say, don't worship me. Don't worship me. I'm a man like you. Yes, he's a man. But a man who was a system of God going somewhere to happen. Does that make sense? So even if I'm a human now and you're not supposed to worship me because I'm just of Nazareth, but yeah, in, in a few months' time. All things will be subject to me anyway, so that's why I can walk around before the cross announcing to people your sins are forgiven. Just give me a few weeks. <laughs> just don't put that check in yet, but you know, just give me a few weeks. Uh, I will deposit the blood in the account. But as I've told you, your sins are forgiven. And I know that I'm not going to change my mind about dying. I know I'll be tempted to, but I know that ultimately, because I'm willingness conscious, you know, I know that I will not feel like it, but I know that after not feeling like it, I will still die. <laughs> so because I know that I will still die, and I know that I will still die because I have died at the foundation of the world, so it's not like I really have a say in this matter as such, even if I like to feel that I have a say, but ultimately because I come in the volume of the book, I will die. And if I know that I will die, you are forgiven. And if, if you'll be forgiven when I die, then it's, you, know, you know what? <laughs> in the same vein, he received worship. While I'm telling you, don't, don't worship me, don't worship me. In a few months' time, I'm the one you worship. So yeah, practice. <laughs> practice. It pleased the Father that in him the fullness of the Godhead would dwell. Fullness. So really to worship God now is to worship the Son. You can't ignore the Son and fix it on the Father. How are you finding the Father? When the Son is the image of the Father. The son is the image of the father. If there was a white person, totally white against this background, you will not see it. It takes a different color to highlight this background. So we're trying to find God without Jesus is trying to find something with no face. No identity. No image. No expression. So Jesus gives expression. The word is replica. Another word he also uses character. To God. So you're looking for God. You have ignored Jesus. As a Christian when Miss Road. He's the entire system of God. So this makes him different from John. And from the Pharisees. And so as we raise disciples, we raise disciples unto him. God. In Christ. And God is not miffed by you calling yourself disciples of Christ. You are disciples of God. Yes. Because God is in Christ. But he's okay for you to not necessarily say, I'm a disciple of God. He's not insecure at all 
at all. At all. It's not insecure. You get this? So we go into the world and make disciples for him. That resurrected Christ, who is now the system and expression of God, is not in the business of making disciples. He has left that to the care of the disciples he made when he was Jesus. <laughs> Do you understand? Yeah. He was Jesus when he was in his bodily form as a man of like passion. So he raised the first 12, 70, 120, 500, resurrected from the dead, spent 40 days with them, remember? Over a period of 40 days, instructing them with many infallible proofs. And I've shown you that infallible proofs was teaching. Infallible proofs was not miracles because he walked miracles before he died. <laughs> it's not miracles. It's not the come, come, come. Let me show you. This blind eye open. See, I'm resurrected. No, he did that before he died. He raised the dead before he died. So infallible proofs could not be miracles. It's not miracles that validate his resurrection. Because he was always working. In fact, he's still working miracles before he called the disciples. The disciples met him working miracles. So when you see that he rose and spent 40 days with them and with many infallible proofs, and then instantly we assume it's miracles. No, no, come on, that's lame. But Luke 24 sets the tone for what he spent time doing with them. He said he expounded them. He opened their eyes that they might comprehend the scriptures. Luke 24, Luke 24, Luke 24. 27, Luke 24, 27. Just take that verse and then skip on to other ones. And beginning at Moses, which is to say the law, Genesis 6, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? Beginning at Moses and then all the prophets, he expounded to them. Give, give me Amplified 27. Beginning with Moses and throughout all the writings of the prophets, he explained and interpreted for them the things referring to himself found in all the scriptures. Right? 44. Then he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything which has been written about me in the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. Next verse. Then he opened their minds to help them understand the scriptures. Keep going. And said, so it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day are witnesses of these things. So basically, his death, his burial, his resurrection were contained in Genesis to Malachi. And I've shown you most of those details. All David's prophecies, all Isaiah's prophecies, all Zechariah's prophecies, all Joel's prophecies, all Haggai's prophecies, all Moses' typologies and Joseph's typologies were all there in scriptures. Three days, Jonah in the belly of the fish was a type of his, 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 his burial and resurrection. Joseph in the pit for them three days was another type. You see multiple types of his ordeal in scripture. 
I can't remember who I was telling, that the entire scripture is one story with just different actors. Repeating the same narrative over and over and over and over again. Saying the same thing, different actors. So you now come to Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. And that's the scripture that has the infallible proofs. Um, actually, start from verse 1. John, um, Acts 1.1, 1, 1, you can start, um, you can give us in the Amplified. Acts 1.1, 1, 1, I beg your pardon. The first account I made, Theophilus, was a continuous report about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he ascended to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given instruction to the apostles whom he had chosen, verse 3, to these men, he also showed himself alive after his suffering in Gethsemane on the cross by a series of many infallible proofs and unquestionable demonstrations appearing to them over a period of 40 days and talking to them about the things of the, concerning the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? So it would, it would have been Jesus reasoning with them scripture after scripture as we see in this same Luke's account. Luke wrote Luke. Who wrote Acts? So the same guy who is saying he's talking to them with many infallible proofs is the same guy who said that when Jesus rose in Luke 24, he opened their eyes and expanded to them the scriptures. Same thing. Same author referring to the same instance in two separate letters. It is Luke speaking in Luke 24. It is Luke speaking in Acts 1. About the same incident. Post cross resurrected Jesus spending time with his disciples opening their eyes to see the scriptures as was written concerning him. In other words, you, you, you are still doubting. Look at where David said that he will not allow his holy one to see decay. Infallible proof number one. You are still doubting. Look at where the same David now said that not a bone of his body will be broken. Was any bone of my body broken? Look at where it says that they gave him vinegar to drink. Do you remember when they handed that to me four days ago on the cross? Infallible proof. It was Jesus taking them through a journey of the scriptures. Showing them prophetic fulfillments in his experience and his ordeal. Infallible proof. Not signs and wonders. Signs and wonders had been done in the highest order before he died. I mean, you fed 4,000 men besides women and children. You fed 5,000 men. You raised the boy who was dead in the coffin outside the gates of the city. You raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. You stopped the issue of blood. You healed a bunch of blind men. Do you understand? He had done stuff. On the easy such that raising the dead after resurrection would have been no extra proof that he was Messiah. Yeah, I mean, I rose from the dead. It's not enough for you. I still need to raise another dead. to proof? Do you understand what I'm saying? So infallible proofs is not consistent with signs and wonders. Instead, it's consistent with Luke. The same Luke's account in 24 of Luke. That shows him teaching them and showing them things concerning himself as it is written. Make sense? Okay. So he raises this one, this 12 or this 120, this 500, spends time with them, 
showing them painstakingly in the scriptures how he is the Messiah and how he is the one that should be followed. And then he sends them. He didn't send the Jews into the world to preach the gospel. He didn't send Gentiles into the world either to preach the gospel. He sent disciples. So he sent what he had made into the world to make what he expects them to make. So he instituted the principle of continuity. I have made you. If you go and happen to the world and make them into what I have made you, that's me having made them. But I can't make them if you don't go and make them. So all of the doctrine and teaching of Jesus was subject to the obedience of his disciples. Such that if they refused to go out, the doctrine of Jesus would have been wiped out after they died. And Jesus would have been powerless to do anything about it. So all he wanted for you sitting down now was captured in his meetings with the twelve. Now that's as profound as it is scary. Because it opens you up to the responsibility that lies with you. That there's somebody in the world who no matter how paths shouts and screams will not come into the knowledge of this Jesus until you call them into it. There's somebody in the world who is destined to hear the gospel only from your mouth. Such that to keep your mouth short is to truncate the light that somebody else should come into on account of you. That your roommate in the same room that knows the same gospel will never have the opportunity to tell that person. There were 12 men, 11 before they even nominated Matthias. And of all 11 of them, it was Thomas that ended up in India. Of the 12 of them, none of them went to Asia Minor until Paul. So imagine if Thomas didn't go. Imagine if he, kept, if he kept doubting. Imagine if everybody stayed back in Jerusalem like, like James. Trying to be G.O. <laughs> you know James was trying to be G.O. of the church in Jerusalem. So he started, started twisting the word of God. People came to you and said, grace has broken out over the Gentiles. You say, okay, Okay, you can keep the other, you can discard the other laws, but just manage this four. <laughs> don't, don't, don't be lawless. <laughs> manage this four. Acts 15, you can read it later. You are hearing that the Spirit of God is falling over Gentiles. And you are saying, okay, yeah, do what, continue what you are doing, you know. 
since you're the gospel, you're the uh, apostle to the uncircumcised. Okay, just, just, okay, don't worry about the other 607 or 9. Just, just manage this four. But imagine if anyone sat down there and refused to move and do what Jesus said. He will not be here. We're here because Jesus poured into men, who 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 poured into you. So discipleship is God's continuity method to keep his doctrine and way alive in the earth. You can't despise it. To despise it is to break yourself off of the chain of continuity for discipleship. And that's what the average Christian does. Who just goes to church and is not a reflection of the teachings of Jesus because he's not connected to the chain that has been coming down from the apostles. So really, discipleship is the true apostolic succession. Discipleship is the actual apostolic succession. It's disciples of Jesus today that are upholding the apostles' doctrine. So people who follow the apostles' doctrine are the ones in the lineage of the apostles. <laughs> so you're looking for apostolic succession. That's us. See Acts 2. Oh, this is good. So here's, here's um, um, Peter speaking and then he comes into verse 40. And with many other words, he, he testified and exhorted them. This is the first, what, what happened on Pentecost. Exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. See 42. And the churches, all that were added, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. You can say in the apostles' doctrine and the apostles' fellowship. See the next line. In the breaking of bread and prayers, and they followed the apostles' doctrine and the apostles' fellowship, broke bread and prayers, and fear came upon every soul. And many wonders were done through the apostles. So it was people following people that had followed Jesus. An apostle is not one who carries the title unto himself. An apostle is after the order of Christ. An apostle is after the order of Christ. In other words, he's one who is championing what the apostles taught, believed, and practiced. And causing others to do the same. An apostle is not somebody who has been in ministry for 20 years. And is tired of being called pastor. I've raised a few pastors now. You know. So let's, let's step up. You know. Let's apostulate ourselves. I'm not taking a swipe at, at people who call themselves apostles. I'm just saying that your apostles sit. Is validated 
by your subscription to the apostles' doctrine. Or else, are you call yourself? Oh, I like this. Discipleship is the apostolic succession. We who are following what was handed down, to those who handed down, to those who handed down, are following the apostles' doctrine. Are you here? That's why discipleship is very important. It is God's continuity machinery. Every idea dies once there's nobody to continue handing it down. Cultures, civilizations, traditions die out once there's nobody to pass it over. Family names die out when there's no male person to take it over. There was a story in the Old Testament about the daughters of Zelophehad. Am I correct? Who didn't, their father didn't have a son. And their name and inheritance were about to be wiped out in Israel. And they went and petitioned to Moses or Joshua. Was this Moses that was still alive in the time of the Eliphaz's daughters? Yeah, Moses. And they had to rewrite the law. Because their lineage was about to be wiped out. In that Zelophehad had had only daughters and no son. Same thing happened to a king. Was it Jephthah or was it Jehoshaphat? That promised that if God gave him victory, the first thing that comes out of his house, he will sacrifice. And his beloved daughter. That story pricks my heart so badly. Why would God, are you ready for this? Why would God kill? And you start arguing, did God kill? Did God not kill? That's your business. I'm not teaching about that today. But I've said to you over and over that God does not, is different from God cannot. There's a stark market difference between God cannot and God does not. Most things you are saying God cannot. Careful. You see something. Some things in scripture are most better understood by establishing that God does not. And appreciating why he no longer does not. (laughs) There must be a difference between God and man without mediator. And God and man. Don't start rubbishing God because now there is. You don't want to be alive in the era where there was nobody between the righteous justice of God. And the nonsense of man. Before you say God cannot. Because you know in trying to defend God, God's character. We make, him, we make him a weakling. No God cannot. God doesn't have power to. God you make him a chicken. You've forgotten that there's a clear difference. Between God and man mediator. If Jesus was on the earth. In the time of Noah. Nobody would have died. So you have to be careful how to explain it. And say God did not do this. Because you don't understand the difference between God and man and God in Christ and man. <laughs> There's a difference. Of God and man. God in Christ and man. There was once upon a time that it was God and man without in Christ. It's that time that the writer refers to as when you were not a people. It's that time the writer refers to as you were dead in trespasses. Is that time the writer refers to as you were enemies of God? He doesn't handshake his enemies. 
The point I want to make is <laughs> a man dies. Having married a wife, they don't have children. Because God has always been fixated on continuity. This, this teaching will help you. You see what it was a type of. God tells the man's brother, go and sleep with your brother's wife that your brother might have seed via her. Think about that carefully. So God now says, God, please pay attention. The woman, yeah, she does not, as it were, deliver DNA to a child. There are elements, but the, the majority of DNA comes from the man. Are you following me? Are you sure? This is the woman. This is the church. I died. We didn't produce any child. You don't generate DNA. I do. I died. God now said, another man, go and sleep with mama. Hear God, sleep with mama that path might have a child through you. So the child they will give birth to is mine. Now, because, because victory knew that as God said it, if he does it, the child will not be his. He refused. It wasn't that victory was not interested. It was that he knew that he, this child that will come is not his. But it will come via his participation. But the seed, somehow, the seed will not be his. The seed will be mine and a continuation of my doctrine and my message. Because God was interested in continuity, continuing as a type and shadow. Onan refused or killed him. Not for refusing to sleep with a woman. That would have been a very palatable instruction. Genesis 38, 8. Um, give, me, give me like an NLT or something. Then Judah said to Earth's brother Onan, go and marry Tamar as our law requires of the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. You see that? Go to verse 9. But Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. Now, I mean, I'm sure you're thinking, but it, I mean, it's, it's biology. Once I sleep with a woman and she gets pregnant, it's my seed. But Honor knew that this seed somehow is not his. So whenever he had intercourse, he will ejaculate outside her. Kill the seed, basically. Spill the semen on the ground. This prevented her from having a child who would belong to his brother. But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to frustrate continuity. To deny a child to his dead brother. So the Lord took his life too. That's how jealous God is. For ensuring generational continuity. When it comes to his way. It wasn't about Tamar. It wasn't about Judah. It wasn't about Er. It wasn't about Onan. It was about God showing continuity. 
Yes, they happened, but it wasn't about them. So when you hear Paul starting to talk about people in Galatians 1 and he says, if anyone comes to you and perverts the gospel, that person is accursed. That's the only curse in the New Testament with cause. Or the kind of curse that can alight. When you hear Jesus saying, if anyone causes this one to stumble, we're better for him. That a millstone were hung around his neck and he was cast into the sea. It's because you are perverting the course of continuity. So Paul talks about how, 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 how is it a thing if, 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 if Satan is an angel of light uh, and he converts into an angel of light, is it a, a mystery if his agents convert themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works? And that's not a good end. And the New Testament is saying that people who are perverting the gospel will not end well. Second Corinthians eleven fifteen. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Go back to fourteen. No wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Fifteen. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. NLT fifteen. The message TPT. Let's just see. Next slide. 15, 15. So it's no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve. New Testamental grace. So it shouldn't surprise us when his servants masquerade as servants of God, but they are not getting by with anything. They will pay for it in the end. Is there one more? It's not a great surprise if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness, but their end will correspond with their deeds. He's not, you, you, don't, you don't come and thwart his continuity plan. God is big on continuity. How does he ensure that? Discipleship. So that you now sitting down hearing the fullness of the gospel are recorded in heaven as sitting down there on the mountain when Jesus was teaching okay you didn't get what I said that when heaven was looking at people that sat at the feet of Jesus and heard the gospel they call your name such that if somebody comes between that transformation comes between that transmission that's what I'm looking for someone that interrupts the transmission of Jesus through the 12 the 120 the 70 the 500 right down to you that person is in trouble do you get it and you too that choose convenience over apostles doctrine you too that see light and choose to walk in darkness you too that know that I should be in this straight line. But because of whatever it is that my Absalomic nature has pushed me into, I decide to disengage and pursue my own agenda. I have disconnected myself from grace. What did Paul say? You who have turned to the law, you have fallen from grace. Who said? Is Paul an Old Testament preacher? So you are sabotaging a lot in your life 
if you disconnect yourself from the continuity that is discipleship. It's not a joke. He didn't send us into the world to raise Christians. It's unbelievers in Antioch that looked at them and called them Christians. Were never named Christians. Never. He looked at them in Antioch and said, these guys, they're behaving like, they look like they're Christ. So yeah, the believers were first called Christians. Which one came first? Which one were you left with? Which legacy were you left with? Believers. The, the believers, the disciples. Acts eleven twenty six. Actually, some translations actually say disciples. Acts eleven twenty six. You see the legacy you were left with first before they changed it and watered it down. And when he, this is New King James, okay. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Go back to verse 2. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church, assembled with the church, assembled with the church, and taught a great many people. New King James. So what was your first legacy with Jesus? A few other translations. Modern translations. Believe good. It was at 26. Both of them stayed, go on, there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the believers. So, believers equal disciples, disciples equal believers, before they were called Christians. And then we left what we were made and took on what the world called us. And then unfortunately, we took on a form of what the world called us. Settled inside Kuriakos. Settled into Christianity. The Christendom. Out of which we got Christianity. One of the world's religions. What an insult to the continuity of Jesus and the apostles' doctrine. So we abdicate discipleship, which is what we're first known as. Abdicate believers, people that practice, not people that look like. Believers were doers. Disciples were practicers, practitioners. Christians just look like Christ. So we left the practice. We left the becoming as. That's what we're called. First John 4. As he is. Not just like. As he is. As he is. As. Not like. As. And Christianity cannot give you as. Christianity gives you like. No matter how much you resemble somebody. You're not a person. I am a Christian, I am a Christian, I am a Christian. You will never be like Jesus. Because you are being like somebody that called you to be us. No amount of plastic surgery, no amount of Botox, no amount of Jimmy, no amount of body mutilation can make somebody who is like to become the same as. That's why Christianity is such a dead end. 
After 30 years, you are tired. You start asking yourself, what have I been doing in church all these years? Who knows what I'm talking about? You start to ask yourself, is this all there is to church? Is this all there is to Christianity? Is this all there is to serving God? I've prayed, I've given, I've donated, I've served, I've been in department. You start because Christianity is a dead end. Keeps you occupied without helping you become. Christianity is not interested in you becoming anything. It's interested in you occupying. After a while, you get tired. So you leave, you break, you go somewhere else. You get tired. Because you're chasing in Christianity what only believership can give you. Because you will never know purpose until you are standing for what you believe. Nothing will ever satisfy you. So just in case you think Christianity is the easy way out, no, it's the, it's the tougher way out. Because you're standing for nothing. You're just trying to look like what they are selling to you. Discipleship is God's continuity model. It's not something to toy with. It's not something, you can't stand and gather people and then not teach the counsel of God's word in Christ. Because you're not plugging them to the apostolic succession. But I repeat, if you're sat under the gospel, I put a few days ago, maybe a couple of weeks ago now, what for today, that any day, better is the gospel with many troubles. Better. Better is the gospel. Better is the gospel. Better is the gospel with many troubles. Better is the gospel. It's a satanic voice that will tell you religion is better than anywhere the gospel is being preached. So you saw, there are some satanic moves you don't need discernment to even figure out. Satanic voices. No matter how bad it is. Jesus didn't promise us smooth. Yeah. If you didn't think your brother would hurt you, he would not have told you to forgive. Do you understand? You're just, you just know I mean? Why not? If you didn't think that there would be any reason for you to have resentment or malice or strife, he will not have already given you the formula for dealing with it if you didn't expect that it will come. So it's unrealistic and antichrist to conclude that the presence of, of issues is the absence of light. Do you understand? Because Favor and Portia are fighting. We don't know the gospel. Because Portia hurt Precious. Jesus is not there. That's witchcraft. Paul and Barnabas fell out. Paul carried the gospel, left Barnabas, carried Silas. And their beef stayed that way until it was resolved. Until Barnabas, Paul now sent Timothy to bring Barnabas. That is John Mark rather. On account of whom him and Barnabas fell out. A sharp, a sharp contention arose. Sharp. It was not a small fight. Arose between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark because the last trip they went, John Mark left, abandoned them and ran away. <laughs> so the next trip is coming. You can understand why Paul is saying this trip is too crucial for us to carry John Mark again. And Barnabas is saying, he's my blood. He's my, they say he must go with us. Paul said he must not go. John Mark said he must go. 
So Barnabas took your mark and left. Not commended by the church. The church released Paul and Silas. It says they left commended by the church. It means that the church understood that Paul was in the right. In the gospel, nobody said Barnabas was not called. Because he, he withstood Paul. The same Paul who in Galatians now attacked Peter. He said, even the same Barnabas now. <laughs> Remember? The same Barnabas was now being deceived by Peter's hypocrisy. And Paul rebuked Elder Peter. Apostle Peter. And he didn't just rebuke him. Scripture says, I rebuked Peter to his face. Lest others be swayed by his hypocrisy. So there was a time in Peter's ministry where he was overcome by hypocrisy. And the call did not lift from his head. There was a time where Peter was overcome by peer pressure. Because as crazy as Peter was, we realized a gay person with Peter, they fear James. Men from James came. I can't with you until the men go back to Jerusalem. That's what caused the issue in Galatians. So as crazy as Peter was, the fear of James for him was the beginning of error. <laughs> because there wasn't wisdom. And yet, that was not the end of Peter's ministry. Because he was overcome by fear, hypocrisy, and deceit. It was a moment of weakness that scripture recorded that you can see the human frailties in the people that God chooses to use. disqualify Peter from ministry. Otherwise, we should not read First and Second Peter. Because it's written by a hypocrite. It's written by somebody who fell. Written by somebody who, what's the word I'm looking for now? Abdicated his position. When his flesh got the better of him. Oh, please, listen to everybody else. Don't listen to Peter. He ain't perfect. And somehow God was asleep when they put first and second Peter in the scriptures. He says some things that you only fall for when you're not properly taught the word of his grace. Uh, <laughs> the devil is a liar. So we see that coming down. The power of the continuity that is discipleship. So your posture of discipleship must not be one you toy with. You hear? Jesus sent them into the world to make disciples. Not to make Christians. They didn't even know what that was until they were named it. Because the believership didn't appeal to them. That was too much work. Discipleship, now that's too demanding. But the pomp and the pageantry and the glory and the activity of Christianity, yeah, that's right up our street. Let's do that. Christianity is in the majority. Narrow is the way. Few there be. Narrow is the way. 
You must be careful of any movement that is popular. I told you last week or two, two weeks ago that a generation must arise to contend for the faith to deliver to the next generation. To contend for the faith that we will deliver because it's continuity. It's continuity. Paul tells Timothy the things you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses. The same commit thou to faithful men who will in turn teach others. Four generations in one verse. Second Timothy 2.2. The things you have learned from me. The things you, referring to Timothy. Yeah? Have learned from me. So that makes Paul tier one. Right? Makes Timothy tier two. And it says, the things you have heard from me among many witnesses... The same, or commit these, give me King James, KJV. And the things thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same, that's important. That's important. The same, tell your neighbor, don't change it. Tell the other neighbor, don't change it. Mm. Because if continuity changes it, it can never be delivered as the same. So in discipleship, the two most important words are the words the same. Let all hell break loose, sir. The same. Be inspired all you like. Hmm? God is, if I am speaking to God, it's no longer God speaking to you. You are such a high profile spirit being. You can sit down and see portals. Dimensions and realms. You know realms. You are seeing more than your pastor. Mm. Overseer. Mm -hmm. You are seeing over. Yeah. You're in church, your pastor is teaching. You are now this the auditor. Yeah. Your pastor's message, yes, okay, yes, pastor, that's right, pastor. That's not right. You are still here. Are you a geo? <laughs> Look among us. You have choir member here. You have musician here. You have usher here. Carry them and go. Because we can't teach you. You're an auditor. You're an overseer of the pastor. Ensure he stays in line. Because when God called him, it's your phone he used. You know, so you answer the call. And then you now say, hold on, he's here. And you take, you take the phone to him. In fact, you, I'm pre, he, let, me, let me even take a message. God, I would relay the particulars of the call to him. Be careful to not elevate yourself to a place you have not been placed. Careful. If you are a disciple, you don't have a message. If it troubles you, it has just exposed your discipleship status. You cannot be a disciple with an ambition. First thing I said before that is if you are a disciple, you cannot have a message. Now I said you cannot be a disciple with an ambition. 
are two mutually exclusive concepts. Discipleship and ambition. Two parallel lines that never meet. When they clash, the effect is disastrous. Mm, Ambition is deadly. Where following and ambition clash, the result is deadly. And that clash simply reveals that this person was not a follower, was just an opportunist waiting to happen. Are you following me now? It's foolishness to demonize followership. Foolishness. And I said when I was teaching church consciousness, you must make sure that you don't throw away the baby with the bath water because you are forming, you know, the gospel. There are people that understand these principles and are living by them. They don't know half of the truth you know, but they know enough truth to believe in something. So if you can abdicate, you never were following. Ever. Oh, marriage is for better, for worse, but discipleship is as you like. But marriage is a type of Christ and the church. Are you wise at all? You combine a woman and a man together in spite of themselves. You can throw away the church. She means nothing to you. You're a Christian. You're not a believer. Because if you should fight for marriage, you should fight for the church more. I'm talking to disciples now. Yes. Stand up for marriage. You stand up for the local church, the body of Christ. Much more. Louder. Louder. This is the marriage that matters. Second Timothy 2 2. Or tier 1. Timothy tier 2. Handing down or committing the same. Faithful men, KJV. So faithful men, the same. Somebody say the same. same. Say the same. same. Earlier I told you to find your neighbor and tell the neighbor, don't change it. Tell. Yeah, don't change it. Mm, don't change it. It's not even your place to change it. It's not your place to remix the message. It's not your place to remix the mandate. It's not your place to define how God told us to do it. It's not. The same. Coming to faithful men, tier three. Who shall be able to teach others also? Tier four. Tier four. Four generations of the same thing. By the time these others also, by the time this fourth tier, are quoting Paul. This fourth tier, are quoting Paul to their immediate witnesses and saying these things too that we have taught you. That enters tier five. Commit the same to others, tier six. Which will in turn teach others, tier seven. By the time it gets to tier seven and tier seven picks up Paul, tier seven will tell the ones that they are immediately responsible for. The same thing. The same thing. The same thing. Until Pav comes upon it. Pav is tier 3,000 and something hundred. And he sees it. And he takes the same thing. And he starts to teach his first disciples. And says in the presence of many witnesses. The same. They pick it. And they go into their home church campuses. They are teaching others. Among the others they are teaching. There is a Paul there. 
who picks it and finds his Timothy and starts to tell Timothy the same. And Timothy finds other faithful men and teaches them the same and they carry it to others in their campuses on where they went to serve. And when they went to serve, the person that went as a youth copper becomes Paul there and finds a Timothy on camp and commits the same thing and tells him to teach others. What are you changing? So if you can cheapen and make light of a house that teaches you the word of God, the full counsel of God, the word of his grace, unadulterated, nobody can help you. The same. That's what we're called to do. Make disciples. Tell them the same thing we were told. Do among them the same thing that was done to us. Bring them to him. Send them out to do the same. It's in the process of making disciples that the gospel is preached and taught. I've said that before in Imitate. We were sent to make disciples via the agency of the preaching and teaching of the gospel. Does that make sense? We make disciples by preaching and teaching the gospel. In other words, the gospel is for discipleship. Are you here now? Whose disciples are they? Christ's disciples. Who makes them? Men. And I said that the resurrected Christ Jesus deserves disciples. He desires disciples. And he demands disciples. But he doesn't develop disciples. <laughs> he deserves. He desires. He demands. But he doesn't develop. Men do. He desires, he demands, he deserves. We develop. We make him disciples. Are you here? We. We. He doesn't develop disciples. We make them. He causes men to make disciples. He causes men to make disciples. You hear? Men, not Jesus. He causes men to make disciples. Jesus only made the first disciples. And I put, why is this important? Because discipleship are made, disciples are made by human contact. Yeah, by human contact. Disciples are made by what? Human contact, by proximity. By physical fellowship and hands-on training. Mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't make a disciple by correspondence course. <laughs> my mentor, my ministry mentor is in Australia. He sends me a newsletter once a month. I'm telling you people's reality. I'm telling you people's reality. Deep Christians. I saw into his ministry. He sent me a newsletter. And a pamphlet or a book. Buy his CDs. You are not a disciple, sir. Because discipleship is not virtual. Make the hologram lifelike. Is it like? Discipleship is by human contact. 
Jesus knew a time will come where there will be Twitter and Instagram and letters and yet he instituted human contact discipleship and made no exceptions to it. That's good enough for me. So if you're not submitted somewhere under someone in person, you are in delusion about your discipleship. If you're not submitted somewhere under someone, you are in delusion about your discipleship. It's by human contact. It's by physical fellowship and hands-on training. Hands-on. Hands-on training. I mean, I think of some things I've done and I just shake my head and expect my reward. I think of times where people came into this place and could not talk. I would tell them they're going to teach and they stand here, they can't teach. And I come and stand next to them. And I say, you don't say that one. Say that one. Speak that one. Teach that one. That's discipleship. Discipleship. And I stand next to you and you say, it's not, it's not so hard. You have to start somewhere. And I stand next to you and you say it. Because nobody just gets up and becomes a master of oratory. Nobody. And that's why in church you must learn patience and forbearance. Everybody has come from a place. Everybody. Everybody. That's, that's discipleship. You stand with someone and support them. You guide them and coach them. Not rule them. Very quickly, church leaders settle into rulership. You know? See your church members as your constituents and you as, your, as their chief. A coach. Rule them. Instead of leading them. And a leader, a leader does what should be done and inspires the followers to do the same. A leader doesn't sit down and throw instructions. That's a despot. Are you hearing me? That's a despot. In a job, the leader's hands are the most dirty. If his hands are the cleanest, he's a despot. He's a dictator. Doesn't matter whether he's speaking in tongues or she's praying in the spirit. A leader does what needs doing and inspires others to do the same. Doesn't sit there and let people work for you. It's hands-on training. Hands-on. Hands-on. But you miss this point and that point. How about that scripture? Go and tie that scripture to this scripture. And this scripture to that scripture. Bring it back to me. Now I can't make you do it if you don't position yourself to be it. I can't be the one falling over you to disciple you. You should know who your leader is. <laughs> you should. And correct that. That's not right. That's wrong. Fix that. Go back. Take it away. Bring it back. Are you here? It's hands on. Jesus made the first disciples in that manner. He could not continue afterwards because he would no longer have a physical body. Do you understand why he handed over discipleship now? Because when he left, he came back in us. He doesn't have a body. Humans with bodies have to continue the discipleship process. He left, he will no longer have a physical body and his glorified body is fundamentally, I wrote here, is fundamentally incompatible with the earth in its current state. The glorified body of Jesus is too good for the earth. He couldn't have remained on the earth in his glorified body. 
That is why when we are transformed into our glorified bodies, the earth will have to be transformed to be compatible with our glorified body. Does that make sense? When our bodies are glorified, the earth has to be glorified along with us for it to become compatible with us. Make sense? So the earth has to pass away. And that's what it means in the terms of the earth being glorified. It has to pass away and the glorified earth is revealed that is compatible with our glorified bodies. So that way, if you understand that, then you can understand why Jesus being glorified could not continue in the earth in that state because that state was incompatible with his body. Make sense? So we take on the discipleship model. It begins with us making disciples by the same human contact handed unto us. Does that make sense? How do we make disciples? By the word. Primarily. So what you are following as a disciple is the measure of the word. Primarily. You're not a disciple because you dress how I dress. But if you want to maintain my fashion sense, well, fine, be my guest. I'm not calling you to it. Yeah. Flesh and blood, shirt and trousers shall not inherit the kingdom. Am I saying you should dress shabbily? No, I'm saying it's of no eternal benefit. So it's of no, it's of no eternal value. However, I'm not saying you should look shabby. I'm not saying you should smell like crap. But I'm saying that is not what discipleship is. Discipleship is not necessarily conformity. It is subscription to what the person stands for. Does that make sense? Conformity is if we all dress one way. That's not discipleship. If you can't teach the things he's teaching the way he's teaching them and get the results he's getting when he teaches the things he's teaching, you're not a disciple even if you dress like him. Do you understand what I just said? If you can't teach the things he's teaching the way he's teaching them and get the results he's getting when he teaches them, you're not a disciple even if you talk like him. Even if you slur your words like him. Even if you pronounce things like him and develop the accent that he has and develop the exact breathing technique that he does. I come to tell you today that you are going to... <laughs> so our articulations are as varied as our appearances. To force everyone to sound alike would be to enforce conformity. Do you understand that? And discipleship is not about conformity. Now, by all means, take the best part of what you like. But do not subject discipleship to that. Because just as you like how I smell, by the proximity of discipleship, you would see something about me that you don't like. If discipleship is relegated to what you like, the moment you encounter something about your disciple you don't like, you cut it off, rebel, disengage, and smash it down. Because if you are truly being discipled, one day, you will encounter something about me that is not palatable. 
it means you are knowing me. Which is really what discipleship calls you into. And that's why it's my leading you, my pastoring you is not a function of your performance. I know your mess, I love you the same. And I'm in mess. You can't love me because I'm just the ogre. The disciple can mess up and is loved, but the disciple cannot kill him. That's because you're looking for someone to conform to. And that's because you're not completing yourself. You have a poor sense of self-esteem. So you're looking to me to be the completion of what you're not. And therefore, I cannot falter. I can't have a weakness. Because it squashes your standard. Discipleship is not about standard. It's about doctrine. It's the word that disciples, not the accent. (laughs) It's the word that disciples, not the appearance. Look at me. It's the word that disciples, not the marriage. Yes. There is a degree to which my marriage is an example. There is a degree to which my marriage is not. Before you think marriage is invalid because mine failed. No, I can be your discipler and my marriage fails. And my gospel doesn't fail. I was not called to you to show you marriage. What if I was not married? Are you learning anything? This is where the enemy trips us. So that my marriage fails doesn't mean my gospel as is beneficial for you failed. Don't forget Jesus' disciples left marriages to follow him. Say we have left all. Jesus then qualifies what they left. Wives, children, lands. For my name's sake. So marriage is not a criteria for effective church leadership. If you are married, let the marriage be good. That's what Paul says about bishops and deacons. It doesn't it's, it say you must be married. And your marriage must be good. But let's be an example. The same person telling them that is the same person telling them in First Corinthians. Seven, if the, un- if, if the unbelieving partner depart, let him depart. Don't even look to be married again. Because when you're married, you are, you are encumbered by the cares of this world. You start worrying about your husband and not about God. Paul, New Testament. Telling the church that has now made marriage a prayer point today. <laughs> but Paul allowed marriage as a concession Not as a breakthrough. Not as a blessing or a miracle. I read 1 Corinthians 7. 
So there's how you look at your disciple on, if, on the basis of conformity and you will miss the ingredient of discipleship. And the ingredient of discipleship is the word. The word done, thought, thought, practiced. The word. To what degree is this person committed to the word of his grace? That's my leader. When you follow a politician, you don't follow a politician for his marriage. You hardly ever interface with his wife. Or her husband. You follow a footballer because the footballer brushes his teeth two times a day. So why put your pastor on the pedestal? Your favorite newscaster is your favorite newscaster because you watch how they dress. See how they talk. Chances are, if you saw the lifestyle of these people, you would not want to associate with them. So if you are being discipled, you must establish what the ingredient of the discipleship is and what it is not. Once you establish what it is, you would never ever see what it is not. Are you following me now? And then what you see, you see it in the light of what is. You will respond in the light of what is. Paul tells them in Acts 20, 32, I commend you (laughs) to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. Give you an inheritance among those who are being sanctified. Somebody say, I am being sanctified. sanctified. So I am being built up by the word of his grace. grace. Yes, yes. I'm being sanctified. And even the person delivering the word of his grace to you is also being sanctified. I'm not your disciple because I've arrived. I'm your disciple because I'm ahead. There's a difference. (laughs) Stop treating me as though I've arrived when I'm only just ahead. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. In church, your leaders have not arrived. They're just ahead. The difference between you and them is mileage. That's all. Not quality. Not quality. Not quality. Your leader is not better than you. We are just all sons of God. One has a bell. He's ahead. As is that sheep that has the bell. Killing, killing, killing. You can hear the bell and you can follow. That one who is ahead. Your leader, your discipler, is your discipler not because he's arrived. Is that instructive? Because arrival for us is glorification. And we shall all arrive together. So if we're on the journey of being sanctified, that's why we must forbear with one another. Not pastor, forbear with the members. Members, kill the pastor when it's his turn. It's not one-sided. Pastor, forgive them when they hurt you. Members, crucify pastor. When he offends you. There's no right to offend you. He's pastor. Then you hear them say, you call yourself a man of... I, no, I didn't. 
<laughs> I did it covers. No man takes this honor upon himself. Reverend or whatever you call yourself. Sons of God don't speak like that. Well trained believers don't speak like that. Never. A falling, a failing, an erring doesn't remove the call. Gifts and calling are without repentance. It's the word that builds us up. We are all being sanctified. Why do you think that Paul didn't stop at praying for the churches? Why does he keep telling the churches to pray for him? As their boss, their papa, their apostle in the Lord, he should have simply been declaring prophetic words over them. Is that not so? I decree and declare. I prophesy. I pray over you. I bless you. One point he's telling them, I desire to come to you that I might impart to you some spiritual gift. That is that both of us together will be strengthened by the exchange that both of us share. We tell them, pray for us. He's praying for them, bowing his knee, praying for them and telling them to pray for him so he didn't place himself above their prayer. Come on. So he tells them in Ephesians 5, I think 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. After submitting to one another, once you understand submitting to one another, that, what that means is, wives, submit to your own husbands. What submitting to one another means is husband, love your wives. 21. Submitting to yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now let me explain what that means. Wives, that would mean you submitting to your husband. Husband, your part in submitting to one another in the fear of God is to love your wife like Christ loved the church. That's you submitting yourself to love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's you submitting yourself to your wife. It's like Christ doing what he does to love us. Christ putting up with us. That's love. That's Christ honoring us. Does that make sense? So all of this is part of our mutual submission as sons of God. So there is a submission a husband owes a wife as son of God. Not that husband is submitting to wife. But male husband son of God submitting to female wife son of God in the fear of God. That's why I said there's nothing like independence in scripture. If they were, Peter would not come and say that treat her as a weaker vessel, but as joint heirs together. Joint heirs together of the grace of God. So the grace on the wife is not less than the grace on the husband. Does that make sense? Just as the grace on the church is not less than the grace on the pastor. Oh no. They are all sons of God. But the way the husband is the head, because he's a head, you can't have two heads. It's the same way the pastor is the, the head, because he's a head. Not because he has arrived. If I've arrived, I will be pastoring you from the Lord's day. Do you understand? I'll be writing you letters from the glory. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, we're telling you. So, as I have attained... 
So also I beseech thee, brethren, <laughs> in view of the mercy of God, you also contend until thou also apprehend that that I have currently and I'll be praying for you. No. Paul is ending his ministry and he said, not that I have apprehended. Kai, Paul. Cut your pastor some slack. Not that I've apprehended, but I am trying to apprehend that for which I have also been. Hey, 12 Philippians 3 12. Give us okay, let's read new, let's read King James and then we'll go to other translations. Paul says, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which also. I'm apprehended of Christ Jesus. Let me lay hold of what Christ laid hold on me for. Give us a modern translation. That's instructive. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things. <laughs> so I'm not preaching them because I don't qualify to preach them because I've already attained them. <laughs> I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection. Am I teaching you well? But I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. And Paul is saying this just before he died. That I may know him. That was verse 10. And the fellowship being conformable to his death that I may obtain the, 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 the resurrection from the dead. And I'm, I'm saying these things not because I've attained all. Or that I've become perfect all. But I'm saying them because I'm, I'm fighting the fight of faith to lay hold. Give us TPT of the message, 12. Very instructive. Look at, look at the message. Paul, your apostle. I'm not saying that I have this all together. I'm not saying that I have made it. But I am well on my way, reaching out for Christ who has so wondrously reached out for me. So he wasn't saying he had arrived, he was only saying he was ahead. Again, only poorly taught believers act like rascals. If you be taught well, scripture is very clear. You will not join those that demonize leadership even when failings are involved. I've learned from this understanding. I've, over the years, I've learned to not see anything as a failing. Somebody's failing who's ahead of you is a lesson for you who is behind. Are you joking? Grow up and fail the failing that you are judging. Let's see how you navigate it. Careful what you call bad. It's probably, going, it's probably the best lesson in that department you are ever going to get. For some of you, the trip of somebody ahead of you <laughs> is a blessing for you that will take you decades to unpack. Decades, decades, decades. It's when you are there that you will understand it. So even what you think is an ill, 
is an instruction in righteousness for you. Just because you, you could have the privilege of being behind and watch him trip. So even the perceived, perceived failings of your leader are an instruction manual to you where you are. It's an expensive fall that if you entered it prematurely can kill you. <laughs> yes, your leader's fall. It's an exp- you can't afford it. <laughs> because everything is up for criticism until it's your turn. <laughs> everything is up for criticism. You can put your, hold your nose up and say, yeah, if not me, it na be you. Yeah. It's gonna be you. It's gonna be you. Except if you are not moving forward. But if you are moving in forward motion, a storm is waiting for you. Because it's people that happen to storms. Selah. So you focus on the word. That's the ingredient of discipleship. Are you getting this? That becomes what you're fixated on. Not the conformity elements. Because when I look at my marriage and see that, oh, you know, the wife cooks well, the husband clears well. Meanwhile, in your own setup, you are probably the, the better cook. So the word in the discipler does the discipling of the believer. Is this instructive? Stick with the word. It's the word. It's practice. It's playing out in all of us. All of us. All of us are practicing the word. All of us are becoming the word. Christ is being formed in all of us. All of us, no exceptions. All of us. All of us. No exceptions. Some just are ahead. Some have more mastery in certain things than others. It doesn't make us less qualified leaders. Because the qualifying factor is grace. And the understanding of the word at a level you are coming into. That's why if you're here and you're a disciple of Jesus under my tutelage, it means that there are things that I am sure is me that is showing you in the word. And you must be okay with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You must be okay with it. You must be okay with it. You must be, you must be okay with it. You must be okay with having read something you didn't see some things. <laughs> Until they taught you in church. You must be okay with seeing a scripture, knowing a Bible story, and never stitching the two together. Until your instructor taught you. Yeah, you must, you must be okay with it. That's how you know that you are a student and you have a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Teacher teaches you what you didn't know. Uh, yes. That's what he does. You must be comfortable with it. Like, I knew this scripture. I knew this thing. I knew. There's some things you didn't even think about at all. That your teacher thought about because of mileage stitched it together because he's been in certain debates and certain conversations that you haven't been in. 
is able to more critically analyze a text of scripture. Look at it contextually. Bring both critical textual analysis in the light of the spirit of God and harmonize it together and say, this is what it is to you, A, B, C, D. And it's so clear to you. It's teaching. It's teaching. And then that sets you on your way to start to unravel the rest. You start to apply those principles to other scriptures and start to see how they work. You see, now, yeah, that, if this is that, and then that is that, and that is the other. And then this is that, and that is the other. Wow. So that also meant that that one was like that. And that doesn't mean that you get, you get ready to graduate from the class. It means you just come knowing that, give me more. I know there's more. Have you gotten this? And so that's why you must be conscious of your discipleship status. You must guard it jealously and wear it proudly. Proudly. Guard it jealously. Wear it proudly. Now that your understanding is straightened. Now that your understanding is straightened. Guard it jealously. Wear it proudly. Understand that I am being made a disciple for Jesus. Not for man. But man is making me a disciple for Jesus. Because when Jesus made disciples, Jesus made them as a man. It was Jesus the man that made disciples for Jesus or for Christ. Raised men, then they start to do the same. Across the nations. And that has been handed down to us until we're doing the same to you. And we have already handed down to some of you who are doing the same to others. That's the call. Once you're conscious that we are called to raise disciples for Jesus, at your level, you are both the discipled as well as the discipler. Because you don't need to have attained to disciple. I'm your discipler. I haven't attained. I'm just ahead. What makes you then feel that you must attain? An attainment that is not possible until we enter the day of the Lord. So just take what you have been taught and hand it down. How about this question? And that, See, my teacher has not taught me this one. That is the joy and safety of discipleship. Yeah, no pressure. So my teacher has not taught me this one. I will go and find out. If they give me the answer, I will come back and tell you. If they don't give you the answer, you have to wait until my teacher teaches me. But the fact that my teacher hasn't taught me this one doesn't mean that what I taught you is not true. The one that I've taught you, look at it here, there, 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 I know that one. That's discipleship. Does that make sense? Anybody in primary two can give extra lesson to anybody in primary one. As long as you finish promotion exam primary one and entered holiday, long holiday, long holiday, before you even enter your first class in primary two, first term, you have not even attained primary two. You just finished third term promotion exam primary one. You passed. 
Any primary one pupil is your protege. You don't have to wait to get to primary three to teach your primary one. Why are you then hoping erroneously that you must finish primary school before you start teaching kindergarten in the gospel? You see, you have not been discipleship conscious. You have just been a Christian enjoying the gospel. Because if you are discipleship conscious, the moment you are taught a course in class, in this school, it qualifies you to teach the same to somebody who has not attended that class. That's discipleship consciousness. The moment you learn something, there's somebody around your sphere of influence who doesn't know it. Take what you have been taught in the same way. Teach it. There's a mastery of subjects that doesn't come by learning. There's a mastery of subjects that only comes by teaching. <laughs> there's some things that you will never understand by learning you will only understand them by teaching them because whether you like it or not to a large degree being taught is slightly passive for the most part so whether we like it or not no matter how much you are learning or receiving there is a slightly almost inevitable passiveness to learning. Because dissemination of information is active. So there is a level of dynamic to what you have learned that you will not master until you are giving it out. Jesus knew what he was doing when he instituted discipleship. There's some mastery you will not get. There's some level of cutting edge you will not come into until you are dishing out what you are learning. It cannot happen in your mind. You cannot. Both your practice and your learning are not enough until your teaching adds to your practice and learning. Oh, most excellent theologians, the things I wrote to you of all that Jesus began both to do, 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 and teach. Why didn't we just sit down and look at Jesus doing and learn? Jesus, teach it. He taught it. So teaching is an integral element of discipleship. You are being taught, you receive with the eagerness to go and dish out the same. Get used to the sound of your voice teaching the gospel. Don't be shocked at how you sound. Grow into how you sound. Grow into how the gospel sounds with your accent. Grow into how the gospel sounds with your intonation. Grow into how the gospel sounds with your elocutions. Go into how the gospel sounds in your diction. Grow how in, into how the gospel sounds with your mastery. Grow into how the gospel sounds with your gesticulation. So if you don't even know if your hands will move if you're talking. Because you're not practicing. Are you the kind of person that talks with your hands to your side? You don't even know. Are you the kind of person who is talking in your hands and doing other things? You don't even know. Are you the kind of person that when you're talking, your hands are following what you're trying to say? You don't even know. How then will you grow in mastery of the gospel? How will you grow in grasp of the gospel if you are not putting it to use? You are a docile disciple. You are that disciple 
as spilling semen on the ground. A disciple that's getting in the way of continuity. A disciple that doesn't want your brother to get seed. Don't want your brother to get seed. You don't want your elder brother to get seed. That's why I'm closing. Want you, don't want you. Other brother has, has died, has put himself, given himself up for you. Now raise seed for your brother. You don't want to. You don't want to. So you spill it away. You spill it away. You keep spilling it away. And every time your brother has an opportunity to get seed by you, you truncate it. Every time your brother wants to get seed by you, you throw it away. You don't want your brother to have many sons in glory on account of your seed that word of God you need to put in someone because Jesus talking now your elder brother talking said in the parable of the sower the explanation the first thing said was the seed is the word so in the entire scripture seed is synonymous to the word you don't want to put the seed in that fertile ground and produce seed for your brother when you say I'm a Christian I'm a disciple but you're raising no seed unto your brother because they are not your seed. Why should I do what I will not get credit for? Is it my church? What will I partake of? Are we following somebody? What, what do we stand to gain? But you are supposed to raise seed for your brother. Your elder brother. Supposed to raise seed. So I'm trusting that this teaching has revolutionized your understanding of discipleship. In all the facets we have explored, starting from Absalom and Amnon and David, right through to Jethro and Moses, it's been quite a journey that you get up and not think that this is one of them teachings you can put on the shelf. Teachings coming forth from this house are such as the coming days will test. Are you a disciple? Are you conscious of your discipleship? Are you conscious of putting seed in and raising seed for your brother? Are you conscious of your posture? Do you have the understanding of what to look out for in your discipler? And the fact that your discipler is just raising seed for his brother. The qualities or lack thereof of honor shouldn't have mattered because the seed that would have been produced would have been his brother's not his so let there be a shift in our understanding of discipleship and in our practice of the same in your understanding of your discipler in your identifying the class that God has placed you in and the instructor he has put you under you learnt anything? give God praise Well, that's it for today's teaching. We trust it has been worth your time. For more of these messages from our stables, kindly subscribe to our teaching podcast at www.thebasileacommission.podbean.com or via the Podbean app on your mobile device. For inquiries and further information, kindly send us an email to info at thebasileacommission.org or find us on social media with the handles at the truth simply put or at War the Church. 
You can also send us an SMS, call us, or connect with us via WhatsApp on plus 234-70-881-8864. Finally, if you would like to give to support the work that we do, kindly follow the Patreon link in our podcast or contact our office for details. Thank you.